Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, praise group, and thank you, congregation, for the wonderful sing- singing. Or not singing, but also reading Isaiah. Sorry. <laughs> a newly promoted colonel had moved into a makeshift office during the Gulf War. He was just getting unpacked when out of the corner of his eye, he noticed a private coming his way with a toolbox. And wanting, <coughs> wanting to seem important, he grabbed the phone. Yes, General Schwarzkopf, I think that's an excellent plan. He continued, you've got my support on it. Thanks for checking with me. Let's touch base again soon, Norm. Goodbye. And what can I do for you, he asked the private. Sheepishly, the private replied, uh, I'm just here to hook up your phone. Hopefully, <coughs> hopefully we're not trying to impress others or God by drawing attention to ourselves or our works. Instead, I hope we're totally impressed with him and we shift the focus from me to him. Our phone line is Jesus and it's always hooked up. Philip Yancey writes, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more and there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. He writes this, because Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's continue our study on the book of Isaiah. And we're focusing on chapter 65, which was so elegantly read this morning. In the previous chapter, Isaiah prayed to God as the warrior invoking his anger against the forces of evil in the day, in the day of vengeance. In response to Isaiah's prayer, God answers with the tenderness of his love. Here I am. Here I am. Which is a double declaration that gives extra words, words of extra strength and meaning. Just like Jesus saying, verily, verily, when he wants to call attention to profound truth. In this case, the profound truth is that God has never moved from his position. He is ready and waiting for his people to return. Even more, he has never stopped stretching out his hands as a welcome gesture of a father beckoning a prodigal child home. Verse 3 and 4, we see that against this picture of gracious love, the rebellion of the children of Israel is hard to believe. Flaunting their free will in God's face, They practiced every idolatrous ritual of a pagan people, rituals that God has specifically condemned. Sacrificing to nature in gardens, burning incense on altars of brick, worshiping the dead, and so on. And in verse 5, we find that most of all, they denied God's character and claimed to be holier than he. The supreme insult for God is to smell the stench of pagan sacrifices offered by his own children 
as a pretense of holiness. Then in verse 7, those who contend that God discriminates in favor of his people lose their argument at this point. And to be consistent with his character, the holy God must vindicate himself by setting things right where there is iniquity, idolatry, and blasphemy. In verse 8, using the analogy of a vineyard, Isaiah sees God's righteousness dividing the house of Israel between sweet and sour grapes. And although the cluster of grapes representing the house of Israel is predominantly sour, there are a few grapes out of which the new wine of the future can be made. God calls this remnant my servants, and he indicates that they are a buffer against a show of his wrath that would destroy the whole bunch. And we see in verse 9 and 10 that in this small cluster of his servants, sorted out as those who have sought after him, is the hope of Israel. Verse 11 and 12, the line is now drawn between the loyal remnant of God's servants and the renegade Jews who forsake the Lord. They have forgotten his holiness and they've denied their birthright of their name as the holy people and the redeemed of the Lord. They have taken on the pagan names of fortune and destiny. And when faith fades, superstition inevitably arises. For those who once knew saving faith and turned aside, become a special attraction. David L. McKinnon writes, In our family history is the memory of one of the most sensitive and spiritual Christian women that we have known. When she forsook her faith, However, she became an equally strong witness for the cult of Scientology. In my last conversation with her, she had so steeped herself in Scientology and steeled herself against Christianity that our longtime friendship still made in silence. For the renegade Jew in Israel, God puts their destruction in the future. Perhaps with one last hope that they will hear his call see his outstretched arms, and come home. In verse 13 and 14, a clear line of distinction separates servants from the renegades in the house of Israel. Servants are those who have heard his call and sought him out. Renegades or apostates are those who have shut their ears and turned to idols. And in a rapid series, fire series of statements, the blessing of God's servants and the curses of Israel's apostates are listed. God's servants will eat, drink, rejoice, and sing, while apostate Jews will be hungry, thirsty, ashamed, and sorrowful. And in verse 15 and 16, their legacy to the future will also reflect their relationship to God. The renegade Jew will leave a name that is a curse against God's chosen people, while servants will be given another name or a new name in honor of the blessing from the hand of God. Their name may be the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, or just amen, the affirmation of God's blessing. Of all the half-truths stated by the New Age movement, none is of a greater falsehood than the name itself. 
The new age is a time that can come to pass only by the power and grace of God. Without him, the idea of a new age is just another fantasy fabricated in human minds. And as with all utopian dreams built out of the figment of human imagination, the new age movement will disappear like foam washed up on the seashore from the surging ocean. God's redemptive plan for his creation is a continuation of his promises. If one of his promises had failed, we would have reason to doubt Isaiah's vision of the coming of the new order and the true new age. But with the assurance that not one of God's promises has ever failed, we can, we can foresee the reality of Isaiah's vision through eyes of faith. Following the same line of logical reasoning with which the prophet assured Israel of its deliverance, Isaiah would remind us that the same omnipotent God who created the universe has the power to recreate what he has already made. And so we can reclaim the full biblical truth from the half-truth of contemporary cultists and name Isaiah's vision the true new age. With the new name of the servants as a springboard, God shows Israel how he will embark upon a new creation as spectacular as his first creative days, beginning with the physical environment of the heavens and the earth which grown under the weight of sin. He will do the new thing with such glorious splendor that the memories of the old heavens and old earth will fade into forgetfulness. Anyone who has witnessed a western sunset or an eastern coastline can hardly imagine the beauty of the new earth that would make us forget our present world. Or for those astronauts who have looked back from space at our big blue marble and could not find words to describe it. We wonder how the new heavens can be more spectacular. Yet, that is God's promise for his new age. As the environment for his people, God will recreate his heavens and his earth with a beauty unsurpassed. Little is said about the, new, about the physical restoration of the new Jerusalem. Perhaps it has already been written in the earlier prophecy of Isaiah chapter 60. But more important is the new life that God will create for its citizens, who are offsprings of God's faithful servants. Eden without sin is recreated with these benefits for its, environment, for its inhabitants. One, there will be no tears or weeping. Two, the lifespan will be a hundred years or more. Three, private property will be owned, built upon, lived in, and farmed without taxes or servitude. Four, labor will be productive. Five, families will be joyful. Six, God's presence will assure instant two-way and responsive communication. Six, a symbol of shalom or peace shall prevail in the new age. And seven, even the law of the jungle among animals will be transformed into a covenant of reconciliation and peace. A desire for utopia is a natural impulse in our humanity. No generation passes without some charismatic leader setting up a Shangri-La, an Atlantis, a Sunnybrook farm, or a Walden II with the dream of recreating paradise. 
Isaiah's idealistic vision of God's new age does not stand alone. Every quality of life prophesied is repeated and reaffirmed in the book of Revelation. To discount Isaiah's vision is to deny the revelation, and to deny the revelation is to limit the redemptive purpose of God. Far better to be on the side of God and God's servants who hear his call, receive his grace, and believe his promise than to lapse into the skepticism of superstition, idolatry, and apostasy. Verses from Revelation 21 read as follows. Verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 9, And one of the seven angels spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is a lamb. Verse 27, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The danger of misinterpreting Isaiah or Revelation is that one may get the impression that it's a combination of grace and works which saves and redeems us. This is a mixed message. All the writings of the New Testament after the resurrection and ascension are all about grace. By grace are you saved and not by works so that no one can boast. Grace and works do not mix. There is no price tag on the gift, no trap in his love, and no shadows in the light. The gospel proclaims that in union with Christ, we are loved, forgiven, saved, accepted, holy, righteous, dead to sin, new, and royal. The gospel is good news from start to finish. The Apostle Paul began every one of his letters declaring grace and peace to you from God the Father. The grace of God comes wrapped in peace. When you receive grace, you automatically receive peace and your soul finds rest. The gospel of grace will point you to the cross where your sins were dealt with once and for all. Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 tells us, Make no mistake, If you think you can do anything to improve your standing with God, you are saying Christ died for nothing. 
You're in effect calling Christ a liar. It is not finished. And elevating yourself to co-savior. Jesus needs my help. Christianity isn't do's and don'ts. Christianity is Christ. Christianity isn't a test. It's a rest. God is not mad with us. Isaiah 54, verse 10 states that he loves you with an everlasting love. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills depart, his unfailing love for you will not be removed. The cross is a picture of spent anger and furious love. The cross is God shouting, let my children go. Yet, we can barely comprehend this because we had done nothing to deserve his favor. From the very beginning, we had rejected his offers and sold our love to a slaver. And when God showed up to help us, we killed him. But on the cross, true love ransomed us and set us free. Learning to walk in the love of God means learning to walk in his grace. It's no longer trying to impress God with your sacrifices, being impressed with his. From the beginning, God desired a relationship with us, but we preferred rules. God told the Israelites that he wanted them to be his treasured people, but they weren't interested. Their attitude was just tell us what to do and we'll do it. The reason some prefer clear-cut rules of religion to the freedom of relationship is because they don't realize that they are God's dearly loved children. Consider the Pharisees. They were big on rules. So what is our one big truth as a Christian church? What is our central belief? There are several beliefs in the world that people have adopted as the big truth. Some say it's obedience. The most important thing is to obey God no matter what. Others say it's attitude. The main thing is to make a good effort. God knows your heart. Still others say it's sacrifice. Give God your best. He has already given you so much. Or fruit. Prove yourself as his disciple. The difficulty with beliefs such as these is that they rely on me. My obedience. My attitude my sacrifice, and my fruit-bearing. And I just don't have that much faith in me. My faith is in another. My faith is in Jesus. In 1994, then-Vice President George Bush Sr. represented the United States at the funeral of former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Bush was deeply moved by a silent protest carried on by Brezhnev's wife, she stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it was closed. Then, just as the soldiers touched the lid, Rezhnev's wife performed an act of great courage and hope, a gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There in the citadel, of secular atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life 
And that life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross. And that this same Jesus might still have, might yet still have mercy on her husband. So what is our one big truth as a Christian church? It's this. God loves us with an unfailing love. The love of this world is failing love. It breaks and it bruises. It disappoints and it ultimately dies. But God's love never, ever fails. Not ever. Not even death can stop his love. Why do we believe in the resurrection? Because God says he loves us with an everlasting love. And everlasting means everlasting. Either God has to raise you from the dead and keep on loving you, or else he is a liar. God is not a liar. His love for us will never wear out or die. Before the cross, Jesus preached forgiveness as a law to be kept. After the cross, he said it was a gift to be received. In Acts 26, verse 18, Jesus tells Paul, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The cross really did change everything. On the day he rose from the dead, Jesus immediately began to preach a different message from the law-based sermons he had delivered before the cross. Before the cross, Jesus preached conditional forgiveness. Forgive to be forgiven. After the cross, he preached this, Luke chapter 24, verse 46-47. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. On the cross, the law was fulfilled. Grace was revealed. And forgiveness was no longer conditional on you doing A, B, and C. Forgiveness became a free gift, paid for by the blood of the Lamb. From God's side, forgiveness is a done deal. There are no more sacrifices for sin. Yet, there are two ways that we can get this wrong. One, tell people that they must do something before God will forgive them. That's called law, and it's a grace killer. Or two, tell sinners that because they are forgiven, they are also saved. That's called universalism, and it's a faith killer. Let's be clear. Forgiveness does not equal salvation. Although Christ carried the sins of the world on the cross, not everyone is saved. Salvation is not the absence of sin. Salvation is the acceptance of God's grace. God is faithful and generous, and he is infinitely lovelier than his blessings. The lover of your soul desires to share his life in wedded union with you forever. And for we who believe it, the gospel is the joyful declaration that right now and forevermore, we are in perfect union with him. Our days of restless wondering are over. For in Christ, we have already found our eternal rest.
in Christ, we are already home. Dave? As we've been hearing this morning, we, may, we pray that we would accept that grace that is offered to us, that we would believe in the Lord Jesus as our Savior and experience that life that he offers and the, the new hope that we have in him. In his name we pray. Amen.